So the truth is, though, that nobody really likes to be thought to be crazy. In 2004, Sam Harris, a noted atheist, wrote a book entitled The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. In this book, Harris likens religion to a form of mental illness. And he goes on to say it is merely an accident of history that it is considered normal in our society to believe that the creator of the universe can hear your prayers, while it is demonstrative of mental illness to believe that he is communicating with you by having the rain tap in Morse code on your bedroom window. Now, obviously, he's being really, really sarcastic, and we don't believe that God talks to us through Morse code on the window, but I do believe that God talks to us and that he hears our prayers. The Apostle Paul knew what it was like to be thought crazy. In fact, in the text that we're going to read today, Festus, the Roman governor, said, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning has, is driving you mad. Now, this is the third time that Paul has made a defense of what he believed, of his testimony in the space of just two chapters. Remember this story began when Paul arrived in Jerusalem. He was mistakenly accused of desecrating the temple by taking a Gentile with him into the Jewish part of the temple. And that a mob quickly assembled and would have killed Paul had the Roman commander not intervened. His first defense had been before the governor Felix in chapter 24. And following that governor's recall to Rome, Paul made another defense before his replacement, Governor Festus, in chapter 25 in the first 12 verses. When faced with the possibility of a trial before the Sanhedrin, Paul appealed to his right as a Roman citizen to a trial before Caesar. This left Governor Festus in a particular tight situation. He did not have an acceptable explanation for sending Paul to Caesar. This wouldn't look good on his record. And so Festus was rather happy when King Herod, Herod Agrippa II, arrived in Caesarea and he, re- he agreed to hear Paul's story. The account of Paul's appearance before King Herod Agrippa II begins at verse number 13 in chapter 25, and it will continue through the end of chapter 26. Now, we're going to begin this morning looking in verse number 23. In verse 23 of chapter 25, we are told that a number of very important people have gathered at Caesarea. In fact, everybody that's anybody is there. They were very important in terms of their position and of their power, and they came together with great pomp and pageantry. It says, And so the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul 
was brought in. Interesting word there. I think you ought to underline or circle the word pomp. It is the word phantasia in Greek, and it is the word that we get fantasy from. It refers to something that is light, something that is fleeting, something that is passing or momentary, just of momentary interest only. It is a reminder to us not to be too impressed by the glitter and pomp and pageantry of this world because it is all passing away. The central characters in addition to Festus, the new Roman governor, are King Agrippa II and his sister, Bernice. It was their great-grandfather, Herod the Great, who had killed all the babies in Jerusalem when Jesus was born. It was their uncle, Herod Antipas, who had beheaded John the Baptist. It was their father, Herod uh, Agrippa I, who had arrested Peter and who had ultimately killed James. But compared with his predecessors, King Agrippa II was a pretty good king. At least he was not guilty of the atrocities of his father and of his great-grandfather. However, the fact that he is living in an incestuous relationship with his sister Bernice shows that he was hardly a model of virtue. But as far as we know, he did not go around killing people. Now, Bernice was the sister of Drusilla, the wife of the previous Roman governor, Felix. You may remember seeing this advertisement. One television program was advertised with these words. My mother hates my boyfriend. We've moved 37 times in the last year, and my father is my uncle. Well, that's the, the promo for the reality TV show that was about the Mercats on Animal Planet. But, it, but Bernice's life would have made a similar kind of impact. Married at the age of 11 or 12, she remarried at 13 to her uncle. Thereafter, she lived, according to some Roman writers of the time, in a marriage relationship with the man now sitting beside her, her own brother, full brother, Herod Agrippa II. Later, she became the mistress of the emperor Titus, the former general who was responsible for destroying Jerusalem. And some writers also suggest that she was the same for his father. When Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea, Festus recognized that here was a man who at least understood Jewish customs and religion. And so he used the opportunity to get Agrippa to hear the case. Festus tells the king his reasoning beginning in verse number 24. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of Jews petitioned me both at Jerusalem and here crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, that is Caesar, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you 
and especially before you, O King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. Now, notice with me as Paul makes his presentation of the gospel, notice some things about what we can expect when we hear the gospel. First of all, our, ma- our mindset affects our ability to listen. It's important to understand that as Paul speaks, Agrippa had many things on his mind. In front of him was a preacher who was making no secret of the fact that he was doing everything in his, in his power to convert the king. He mentions the king by name five times in the following verses. In Agrippa's mind was also the fact that the destiny of his family seems to be inextricably linked with the gospel, with the story of Jesus. His family had opposed the gospel, and they had all died or had been disgraced because of it. And sitting by his side was his sister, who he lived with as his wife, a visible reminder of his own sin. As we sit listening to sermons, sometimes we might reflect on how no one else in our family is a Christian or how our family might react to us being saved and being a Christian. Maybe in addition, we also reflect about the reminders of our own sin in our own lives. As Paul begins, he immediately directs his attention to Agrippa in verse 2 of chapter 26. He says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. In verse 4, Paul begins to point out that he was a good Jew. He was not only a good Jew, he was a Pharisee in practice. But I believe more than just defending himself, Paul is trying to identify with Agrippa. He's he's identifying with Agrippa's fears. He's saying, it wasn't just your family that persecuted Christians. I want you to look at what I did. It wasn't my great-grandfather. It wasn't my uncle. It wasn't my father. I was the one. I was the one who held the coats and gave my approval as they stoned Stephen to death. It was I that organized and led the persecution of the Christians. In fact, in verse 9 through 11, he says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I think he's saying to Agrippa, I can understand how you feel. I understand your fears. I've been there too. Paul didn't describe his conversion as some kind of evolution but rather as a radical transformation, a change from darkness to light, a change from persecutor of Christians to promoter of Christians and a practitioner of the faith. 
Beginning in verse 13, there is a third account of his conversion. I'll not read it all to you this morning. Most of you are familiar. But he begins to tell King Agrippa about his conversion experience on the road to Damascus and how he was confronted by Jesus and how Jesus said to him, Why are you persecuting me? And said to Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And he said, who are you? you?" And And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then in verse 18, he lays out the good news before the king. And he brings it all into a nutshell. And what a, a marvelous declaration of the gospel. He says, my purpose was to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to the light. And from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sin and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Our mindset affects our ability to listen. And second, true conversion always produces a change. Therefore, he says in verse 19, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works benefiting, befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both the small and great saying no other thing than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. That Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and that he would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. What Paul does is he presses the claim that true conversion has consequences. His encounter with the risen Christ radically changed his life forever. He no longer persecuted the church, but in fact he preached that Jesus was the Messiah. The conversion and his call to service became the basis of his life. This was the life he now lived. True conversion always produces a change. And third, a lost to the lost world, the commitment of salvation seems crazy. It seems insane. Paul didn't even get to finish his message before Festus, the governor, who had been listening up to this point, interrupts him. And in verse 24, it says that he says, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Now, what prompted Festus to declare that Paul was mad. Now, Festus would have probably listened to Paul give a theological discussion of Christianity. But when he understood that Paul was saying that Jesus had literally bodily risen from the dead, that it was a fact of history and that it had changed history, It was too much. For him, as an intellectual, 
the notion that Jesus or anyone could rise from the dead was preposterous. Charles Finney, the evangelist of the 19th century, once said, if you have much of the Spirit of God, it is not unlikely that you will be thought deranged by many. We judge men to be deranged when they act differently from what we think to be according to prudence and common sense. When they come to conclusions for which we see no good reasons, Paul was accused of being deranged by those who did not understand the view of things under which he acted. This is by no means uncommon. Multitudes have appeared to those who have no spirituality as if they were deranged. Yet they saw good reasons for doing as they did. God was leading their minds to act in such a way that those who were not spiritual could not see the reason. One such example is the story of William Borden. In 1919, at the age of 26, at that point a graduate of both Yale and Princeton, he left his palatial home near Chicago's Lakeshore Drive He gave away his fortune of over $500,000 at that time in order to become a missionary to the Muslim world. Many of his contemporaries thought he was crazy. And when he died six months later from cerebral meningitis amongst the flies and heat of a Cairo hospital, some were sure that he was mentally unbalanced. But God didn't share their opinion. As reasonable as the Christian faith is, there are some who will not believe. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Corinth stated, For the message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. A little later in the same letter, Paul makes this, Sobering statement. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It requires God's Spirit to first open our hearts and our eyes so that we can see and understand the gospel. Festus just didn't get it. Paul responds in verse 25, I am not mad, O most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. Now Paul defends his presentation because he understood that the words of an insane man cannot be taken seriously. But the words that he spoke, he wanted them taken literally because they were a matter of life and death. They were a matter of of eternal life. And to the listeners today, he would say, don't give up. Even if others think you're crazy, keep on serving the Lord. And fourth, the gospel demands a response in verse number 26. Paul makes a neat transition. In the midst of his reply to Festus, he turns his attention to King Agrippa. And he says in verse 26 and 27, for the, for the king before whom I speak freely knows the things of which I speak, for I am 
convinced that none of these things escapes his attention. Since this thing was not done in the corner, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Now, Paul has neatly backed Agrippa into a a corner with this question. Do you believe the prophets? Agrippa was considered an expert on Jewish customs and religion. And now Paul puts him on the spot. And he appears to be rather uncomfortable. It was embarrassing for the king in the front of all these important people to be asked such a question. He seems unwilling to to believe and yet unable to deny what he has heard. And so in verse 28, he says, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now, down through the years, many have taken the phrase, you almost persuade me to be a Christian to mean you have almost convinced me to become a Christian. It is more likely that this was said with mocking sarcasm. Do you really think, Paul, that in this short a time, you are going to make me a Christian? You are going to have to do a lot more than that if you're going to make me a Christian. Don't you realize how powerful and intellectually sophisticated I am? The application for us today is to beware of those things that we say that we believe in principle, but that we don't put into practice. Now, let me explain what I mean. The Jews of Jesus' day, except the Sadducees, believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in it as a principle, but they refused to believe it when it came to the resurrection of Jesus. It is also true that there are many doctrines that we believe in principle, but which we refuse to put into practice. We say that we believe in the goodness of God that he is all-knowing, that he is all-powerful. That is, until our circumstances seem to challenge those truths. And then we're not always willing to act on the truths that we say that we believe. Paul closes his defense by saying in verse 29, I would to God that you were not not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. To his listeners, Paul said, I wish you knew Christ like I do. And then he probably lifted his hands up so that the chains could be sent and rattled his chains and said, except, except for these chains. In verse 30 and 31, we read, and when he had said these things, the king stood up as well as his governor and those who sat with him. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Tragically, as far as we know, Agrippa or anyone with him that day ever believed Paul's message. In spite of having heard the message of the gospel from the lips of the apostle Paul himself, 
Not one of those three individuals were saved that day. Not one. And one by one, it says, and I like the old King James here, they rose up. They rose up. They got up and they left. Now, why? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us for sure. We can only guess. I think that the issue for Festus may have been the issue of the pride of intellect. It really is too bad for little did he know that within two years he would be dead. Agrippa had his own set of problems. By his side was a sister with whom he was living as his wife, a visible reminder of his own sin. These things must have crossed his mind as he listened to the preacher in front of him by reminding him of this present situation, he understood who he was before a holy God. Sin had a hold on him. And the question is, does sin have a hold on us today? If Agrippa was going to become a Christian, then this unhealthy relationship with his sister Bernice would have to stop. Paul would have made no bones about that whatsoever. And today I would tell you the same thing. If you are to become a Christian, there has to be a change in your life. There must be a change in your life. The story is told that an eagle swooped down and grabbed a, a rodent in its powerful grasp, pulling it to his chest, he soared into the sky higher and higher. But then suddenly, he didn't look so majestic, but he began to flap his wings rapidly before losing altitude and finally crashing into a rock. Upon investigation, what they discovered was that the little rodent had teeth And those teeth had embedded in the chest of the mighty eagle. And although the eagle thought he was controlling the rodent, all the while the rodent was actually draining the life from the eagle. Sometimes those things that we cling to in life may be draining the life from us. Because that's what sin does. And then there's Bernice, poor young woman, rich, beautiful, soiled, with the chance before her of being cleansed and set free from sin and guilt, she too rose up. For her, the choice was Agrippa or Jesus. The choice for her was the kind of life that had been offered by her mother, are the kind of life offered by Jesus, represented by Paul and by the chains that held him, blinded by the allure of this world and by the lust of the flesh and the lies of Satan, she also rose up. Let's pray. Father, help us to realize that Sin can have a grip on us. 
But all the while, it's draining the life out of us. Maybe someone here today that, that that's true of. I don't know, but you do. I pray that they might see that today is a day that they could do something about that. They could repent of their sins and turn and ask you to save them. And there will be a change in their life. But it will be a change wrought by your Holy Spirit. It's not something they have to do themselves. It's something that you empower. So, Father, if there's one that needs to be saved this morning, we pray for them. We pray that they'd have the courage to turn to you in this, the quietness of this time and in this place. Repent of their sin and accept what Jesus has done on the cross. Help us, Lord, to be willing to face the challenges that will be ahead of us as believers in the years of hit. This world may more and more be convinced that we are crazy because of what we believe. Help us to stand firm on the truth of your word and give us courage in the face of those who would belittle us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be good witnesses for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Brother James is going to be here this morning. Perhaps God spoke to your heart in some way this morning. We want to give you an opportunity to respond. So if you're here this morning, God's spoken to you. I want to invite you to come. Maybe you need to come and accept Jesus. Maybe you need to come and have someone talk with you about what that means. Maybe you need to come and request baptism or you need to come and unite with our church. Whatever it is that God has laid on your heart, we want to give you an opportunity to respond. Would you come right now while we sing? Almost for you to come if you need to come. Oh.